This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Hello and welcome in, friends. I am Pastor Randy Moore. I'm the associate pastor here at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana, and I'm joined, as always, by Pastor Andy Payton. He is the lead pastor here at Methodist Temple. Good afternoon, good morning. I guess time doesn't really matter at this point. (laughs) It's good to be with you, Randy. It's good to be on the podcast. Hello, everyone. Yeah. Well, here we are in Lent. Uh, We're coming up on the third Sunday in Lent already. That means... uh, Easter is not far behind. We have been dealing um, during the season of Lent appropriately with the cross and understanding what happened on the cross and and understanding uh, the meaning of Jesus's death. And Pastor Andy is preaching a five-week sermon series called Atonement or Atonement, Understanding the Cross. But before we get there, Let's just briefly, for those who might be unfamiliar with the church calendar and the more liturgical approach to, to church, might not be so familiar with what Lent is. I never was. I mean, growing up Baptist, I didn't. We didn't observe Lent. I never really heard of it. So, you want to do a kind of a little explanation? Sure. Um, well, Lent goes back. Honestly, it goes back to Catholic tradition. In the Methodist Church, also, Lent wasn't really a, an intentional part of what we do, as far as I can tell, until the late 1980s when we were updating our book of worship. So, just to be fair, Randy, there's a lot of Methodists, I'm sure, that would say Lent wasn't a big part of our growing up or our tradition as well. But um, for Christian tradition, though, Lent is important because it's a, it's a time of spiritual preparation for Easter, which is the highest holy day of the Christian year. And the word Lent, as we talked about before, comes uh, comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, which may, means spring. And so the way I kind of describe it is it's spring training for Christians. And so what do Christians typically do during this time of Lent? Well, some people fast. They give things up. Um, if you go way back into the tradition, um, people were prepared for baptism during this time. Also, if you go way back, way back in the tradition, and, and an in- interesting practice during Lent for the early Christians was that they would go out and try to reconcile with people who had left the community. And I find that to be an interesting thing to consider during this season of 40 days. Who in my life am I estranged with? Who in my life do I need to reconcile with? Because all that is a form of spiritual preparation. But just to put it simply, Lent is a time of spiritual preparation based on Jesus's 40 days in the wilderness. It's an ancient tradition. It's a good tradition because, uh, quite simply, we have to learn to say no to ourselves and our desires in order to say yes to God and God's bigger desires for our life. Yeah. So those spiritual practices that we focus on during Lent are not Lenten things only. They are 24-7 things. It's just that we want to become aware of those. And as you said, it's it's time to get back to the fundamentals, like mm-hmm. spring training. Okay, this is where we really strengthen those muscles in terms of prayer and fasting and giving alms. Now, what you'll hear popularly is people giving things up for Lent. People mm-hmm. who don't even observe Lent might, you know, might do that, give something up for Lent, like like chocolate or, or, or whatever. And those can be good, but they're getting at the fasting, right? Mm-hmm. That, that aspect of it, which means 
denying yourself something, saying no to something, as you indicated, so that you can have this heightened awareness of the presence of God in Mm -hmm. your life and dependence on on God. Yeah, dependence and obedience to God. That's a part of it. And that's a term that we don't use very often in in our Protestant world, in our mainline Protestant world, obedience is something that people sometimes negatively react toward. But obedience is huge. It's key if one is actually going to be a disciple of Jesus. And uh, we learned yesterday in our devotion during our staff time, the word disciple appears, what was it like, I don't know, a few hundred times in the Gospels? Right. The word Christian appears three times yes. in the New Testament. So just think about that. The point is we are called to be followers. We're called to be obedient. We're going to have to, in order to do that, though, have to practice. It takes intentionality to get there. It doesn't just happen on accident. Yeah, and it's not works righteousness. I mean, you can't no. at all. Yeah, and, and yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's another whole different right. animal. But yeah. uh, I, there is a sense that in heaven and hell, I'll call it heaven and hell Christianity, um, and what I mean by heaven and hell Christianity is this notion that Christianity is all about where we go when we die. And I'm going to just say, put that on, off to the side for a second. I, I totally believe in life beyond. I totally believe in all that. But um, Christianity fundamentally is about life here and now. And so when we're talking about becoming obedient, what are we doing? Well, we're trying to become obedient to a higher power. We're trying to become obedient to a greater presence. And it is through aligning ourselves with that higher power and that greater presence that, traditionally speaking, that's where we find happiness. What's at stake here is our happiness, our joyful obedience in God. And uh, I feel like that's an important thing to, to throw out there because everyone wants to be happy. You ask anyone, they're go- you want to be happy? Yeah, I want to be happy. Well, what does happiness mean? Um, in our culture today, happiness a lot of times is defined as I get out of life what I want. It's a me-driven type of happiness, a self-driven type of happiness. But in Christianity, happiness is not like that at all. It's about aligning ourselves to a bigger purpose, a higher calling, a greater presence. And it is as we align ourselves with that design that we've been created to live, we find lasting happiness, kind of like a purpose-driven happiness. And I know we're going off the deep end here, but um, that's Lent. That's Lent. Yeah. And it'll come into play when we start talking about the meaning of the cross, because if we're talking about the meaning of the cross beyond a transaction, mm-hmm. then all of life comes into play, exactly yeah. what, you're, what you're talking about. You know, we lament as pastors during the season of Lent that we really want, you know, we really want everybody. We want to see everybody that's in the pew on a Sunday morning there for Ash Wednesday. We want to see them for Mon- in, in the Holy Week services. We want to see them there um, on Monday, Thursday, and we want to see them there on Good Friday. Um, but it's typical, I think, and what was in my first appointment, and I'm, and I'm sure it's the same everywhere, where that that doesn't happen. That can be kind of frustrating because we don't want people to miss Good Friday. Mm-hmm. Because it's a part of the story. You know, if you go from Palm Sunday to Easter, you you tend to miss Good Friday. And that's another reason why Lent is important. Um, so, you know, and some and some churches deal with it by doing the Passion on, on the Passion, the, the Palms and the Passion right. on Palm we, Sunday. We yeah. force people to experience Good Friday, even though it's not Good Friday yet, because yeah, we know they're going to skip Good Friday services on Friday. <laughs> but... Yeah. But no, if, if 
a person really cannot truly experience Easter without actually experiencing the cross either. You, you, and that's the problem within Christianity. We want to jump across the hard stuff. We want to jump across the difficult stuff and get to the warm and fluffy feeling of Easter. Well, you got to go through the wilderness. you got to go through the trenches. you got to deal, a person, we have to deal with our sinfulness and our, our own selfishness if we're truly going to be set free, as I was just talking about, set free for Christian discipleship. All right. Yeah, you got to go to the cross. You got to go through the cross. The cross. There's yeah. no, there's, it's Christianity, how is it said? It's not death avoided, it's death transformed. Right. We live in a culture where death is avoided. And death is not just that my body stops living, death can be. Uh, we don't want to die to certain things. We don't want to give up certain stuff. We want. We don't want to quit certain behaviors. Well, if a person's truly going to get everything they can out of the gospel, if they're going to become everything God's created them to be, it means we have to give some stuff up and right. let it go. All right, you're in this five-part Lenten series, and it's again, it's at one or atonement, understanding the cross. And let's just talk briefly about these these five sermons. You've already delivered one, and you've got four more to go, and I squeezed one in there last Sunday. Um, and so uh, we're not going to get into these in any great detail. We'll come back to two of these theories uh, because I preached on one, and you're going to preach on another one. But just just so people get an idea of what we're talking about when we're talking about theories of the atonement, what was it about the death of Jesus that atones or reconciles us mm-hmm. with God? What is it that breaks down those barriers that have been built up uh, between uh, us and God? And so um, in the first week, you preached a sermon um, stating that the death of Jesus proves God's love. I'm going to go through the list, and we're going to come back and just very, very briefly touch on them. The second one is that the death of Jesus is a sacrifice for sin. Week three the death of Jesus disarms the principalities. Week four, the death overcomes the forces of wickedness. And number five, the death of Jesus creates a path toward transformation. Just briefly, the death of Jesus proving God's love. Proving God's love. So Jesus' death is a revelation, a manifestation of what I would describe as the most powerful force in the universe, the love of God. And so foundationally, when we're talking about the cross, the cross is pointing to this consistent love, a love that continues on even though God doesn't always agree with what we're doing. God doesn't always find pleasure in what we're doing. Um, God's love still remains consistent because we see that in the cross. That's what happens on the cross. Jesus gives his life over for sinful, for for sinners, for sinful people, um, and manifests what's most, let me me think, the deepest truth, Mm -hmm. the deepest truth. And so that's the first one. That's the most foundational one for me. Number two is the death is a sacrifice for sin. In some ways that builds on your sermon from last week. That's Mm -hmm. the typical way people think of Jesus' death. He sacrifices himself for the sin of the world, to take away the sin of the world. And uh, this weekend we're going to talk a little bit about how I understand that. But uh, that's the reason why I went number two on that one, because uh, it's just so foundational to the, how Christians understand the death of Jesus and the cross. And then because I preached there in the midst of your five, you're going to combine, is it three and four here you're going to combine? Yeah. Which would be disarming the principalities and overcoming the forces of wickedness. Yeah. It, um, I'm going to talk about, so what are the symptoms of the principalities? What are the symptoms of wickedness? And how does Jesus' death 
reveal something greater than those things. And again, it's going to call forth our obedience and our discipleship once we really understand it. All right. And then finally, uh, you're going to wrap it up with the death of Jesus creates a path toward transformation. Yeah, that's my last uh, chance or my last um, attempt to say, if you didn't hear everything I said in the previous sermons, let me just say it all again so that uh, we understand that the death of Jesus is meant to, to call forth our own change of life, our own transformation as well. All right. So last week you had you were uh, occupied with uh, other things, and so I, I I filled in for you last Sunday, and I told the congregation I said I'm not going to pretend that I can preach Andy's sermon on the death of Jesus being about sacrifice for sin, but I but I do want to preach on the cross, and um, what I tried to say in that uh, was a couple of things in the beginning, like. Absolutely, the cross is front and center. I've got a cross around my neck. I've got a cross on a ring on my finger. Um, The cross absolutely draws the attention to Jesus on the cross. It is unmistakable. It is important. And that's why we struggle with it so much. And it's okay to struggle with it. I tried to make that point right up front. And even Paul struggled with it. My text, and a lot of these come from Paul, these theories. Uh, he wouldn't have called them theories. That came, you know, that came later. But he used those images to try to understand what happened. And so the fact that he didn't settle on anyone mm-hmm. says that we don't have to settle on anyone. And it's possible that every one of them have some sort of a handle on the truth, and that the church itself does not have a creedal statement on the atonement. Um, and so we ha- that gives us freedom. Mm-hmm. That really does give us freedom to struggle with it. And the fact that they're called theories says, okay, they're not hard and they're not facts, you know, they're not pro- proven facts. So I wanted to make that point even as I struggled, and what I was struggling with was uh, the theory that's called substitutionary atonement. And while it's not the official stance, it sure seems like the most prevalent one. And there are, even at that, even if you take substitutionary atonement, there are variations of that. Some of those are softer than some of those that are harder, you know, with a, with a harder edge. But essentially, it, it says that uh, penal means punishment. We know what substitution means that we get pun- Jesus gets punished for us and if you want to take that to the est- extreme it's you know does that mean that we belong on the cross you know we uh, if not for Jesus we deserve to be publicly shamed in that way and humiliated and forced to suffer and die and i think it's okay to struggle with that mm-hmm. do you yeah i mean What's at stake is the character of God. And what I mean by that is the question that a lot of folks have for substitutionary, penal substitutionary atonement is, why is it that God requires the death of someone in order to forgive? That almost, in a sense, would say we're limiting God's capacity to love in that moment. God has to have this happen in order to forgive. And And the people who struggle with penal substitutionary atonement would say, well, no, that doesn't make any sense. Like, God doesn't have to have anyone die so that God might love us and forgive us. In fact, if you look at the Hebrew Bible and the Gospels, we were talking about this before our podcast, 
you see God forgiving along the way, completely separate from any sort of sacrifices, any sort of any of that 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 penal substitutionary atonement mm-hmm. assumes. Like the big one for me is this, and and we were just talking about this is. Um, Typically, what people think of when they think of the cross is they think it's all about forgiveness. Jesus takes our place so that God might forgive us. That's kind of the the mechanism of it all. Well, if that's the case, if the cross is just about forgiveness, then my question becomes then, why is it then that Jesus is forgiving people their sin way before he gets to the cross? The Gospels are very clear about that. In fact, he is criticized for doing that. Jesus forgives people, and the religious elite are like, well, who are you to forgive sin? And then if you go to John the Baptist, even John the Baptist, when he's baptizing people, if you read if you read the text, it says uh, repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So forgiveness is being offered there. And so um, what I would suggest is that the cross is a manifestation of the forgiving love of God. That's always been true. Um, and certainly it's not a requirement for God to be able to do that, which is what I think you were getting at, Randy. But right. But I know, like, let's just be honest, we're rocking a boat right. by even having this conversation. And yeah. uh, because people have just been led to believe this is the way it's always been, this is the way it's always been interpreted, this is the way it's always been applied. And I would say, yeah, I mean, certainly within Protestant Christianity, penal substitutionary atonement is the prevalent one. Mm-hmm. But you got to put that in, again, historical context. The Protestant movement has only been going for like 500 years. Christianity has been around for about 2,000 years. And so just to think that this is the way it's always been <laughs> is a pretty narrow view of the history of the cross, the history of the theories of the atonement. And uh, what we're trying to do is invite people to theologically think through, have you thought about what you're actually saying here? Do you, do you see the implications of of what we're getting at here, these kinds of things. Yeah. Well, and we, we always think of Jesus, right? Uh, and so how did Jesus operate? And I made this point that I saw Jesus operating as a healer, especially mm-hmm. in the synoptics um, and especially in the synoptics, especially in Mark. He comes on the scene healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, try, you, know, you sort of look for where is he using violence to solve problems? He, he just doesn't. The closest uh, thing he gets to it is turning over the tables in the temple. Mm-hmm. That's the closest moment in the Gospels, as far as we know about Jesus, that you would say, well, that was aggressive. Because <laughs> he does get a like a whip and chases people out of the temple. All right. There's an interesting argument about whether or not he was actually angry. Mm-hmm. Some would say that that this zeal it, it is a passion. Mm-hmm. It was highly emotional, but maybe not angry more like a prophetic demonstration maybe something yeah. like that yeah yeah hmm. what i tried to do and i didn't invent this uh, there is one of the theories or one of the it, this might not even be a theory but it's one way of trying to understand what happened on the cross and you know here's going another label but could be called participation that we participate um with Christ in his faith. And I did a little a little word study and from the text that I use uh, from Romans, the third chapter, in the 22nd verse, um, the Greek can be translated in, in one of two ways. Uh, it can be translated faith in Jesus, and that's the way most people read it, but it could also be translated faith of Jesus. I thought that was helpful uh, 
These are very, very closely related, but there's an important difference that I think can help us understand what's going on here. So what is it that saves us? I mean, in the Protestant tradition, it's we're saved by faith, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so here that is in the uh, Romans 3.22, faith in Jesus or the faith of Jesus. There's a little bit of a difference. And so the point there being that it is Jesus's faith. He was true to God. He represented the righteousness of God in the face of Roman occupation, in the face of opposition from his own, some of his own people. And that's what led him to the cross. And that's where I started talking about the fact that it was inevitable um, that he came to proclaim a new kingdom, saying, no, 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 no. The permanent kingdom is not the Roman Empire, the Roman kingdom. God is the true king. Mm-hmm. Well, when you speak truth to power, there are, there are consequences. And that's what led to, his, led to his death. And so that's why I said, can we consider that um, this was inevitable? But it was not required. It was not required. Um, so th- that's where I came down on that. And, um, and then where do we enter into that? Well, um, he goes on to say in the 25th verse that, uh, that salvation is made effective through faith. Mm-hmm. Effective for us by us participating in that and being faithful like Jesus. And if we were as faithful as Jesus, we'd put ourselves in just as much danger as he put himself in. Yeah, because you're at odds with, to go back to the sermon series we just mentioned, um, when you start to follow Jesus, that inevitably is going to put a person at odds with the wickedness and the powers and the principalities of this world. You're going to be counter-cultural in the sense like you're living a, a different life, you're going a different direction than a lot of folks are in the world around us. So, yeah. Um, The line that sticks out to me from your passage, or at least something I found myself thinking about from your passage that you used this this weekend, Randy, has to do with that verse 21. It says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophet, not prophets. So, what is the righteousness of God? That's an important question because Jesus' death, his faith, his life is a demonstration of the righteousness of God. And as I look at this verse, and, and certainly mm-hmm. jump in here after, you know, I will throw something out here and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Um, the righteousness of God is something that exists independently of any particular verse that's in the Bible any particular religious dogma, anything like that. The righteousness of God is like the force of God's presence. It's the power of God's presence that's working through in and through the world as it is. And it's that righteousness, that power, that force of God's presence in Paul's mind is, is true for Gentiles. It's true for Jewish people. And we see that that righteousness, that rightness of how God has intended us to live demonstrated in Jesus. And so I, I just find that to be, it, it's, a, it's reflected, like we get glimmers of it, don't get me wrong, we get glimmers of it in the Bible. The law, the prophets talk about this righteousness, but this righteousness has existed from the very beginning of time. 
it, it's this moral universe type of thing that we're that I've been talking about. A lot. Yeah, I think what we have going on here is is that God is righteous because God will do what is right, and what is right is that God will keep His promises and God will save, because Paul is dealing with. His own people, mm-hmm. the majority of his own people, did not recognize Jesus in the way that Paul recognized Jesus and in the way that we recognize Jesus. So what's going to happen to his people? God's righteousness says they too will... He's mm-hmm. got them. Mm-hmm. He's got them. And he's got us. And, you know, th- that's a powerful, a powerful, powerful statement. And that, that God reigns uh, too. I mean, I think that's what Jesus was dealing with. Um, that the Caesar doesn't reign, and it appears that the Caesar is reigning, especially in the death of Jesus, it appears that Jesus is reigning. And that brings up the other thing that has to be included when we talk about the death of Jesus, and that's the entire life of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and, and the ascension. So that's another thing where we can, we can kind of get hung up on the transaction and on the death itself. And as wonderful as it is... Um, it's not complete without the without the resurrection and without the life. I'm going to be preaching at Centenary this week, and I'm going to preach, be preaching on the the uh, cleansing of the temple or the um, the temple incident. And uh, I came across something that I that I knew, but I I really kind of forgotten about it as we were going through Romans. But for John, um, the cross is important, of course. It's important in all in all four, and the resurrection is there, of course, as well. But the real saving moment was the incarnation uh, mm-hmm. in, in the Gospel of John. Yeah. So that opens it up even even more and brings in another dimension. Well, the way the John's Gospel talks talks about Jesus is it's the Word of God made flesh. Mm-hmm. And the Greek here is logos, the logos of God made flesh, the wisdom of God made flesh. And so there's a way of life implied, right? This is the way we are to live. It is, it is a way of life that even though the principalities, the powers, the Caesars of the world will try to kill it, stomp it, get rid of it, they cannot. It comes back again and again and again. And it's like, well, my, one of my favorite lines is God's law, you can say it another way, God's righteousness, God's way never breaks. It's we who break against it. We've consistently tried to stomp it out. We can't get rid of it. And so um, what I love about what you said about the death of Jesus is how much, if you really understand what you, you know, you're talking about, it means our own transformation. It means that we have to change our way of life. And this is my, my even bigger criticism of penal substitutionary atonement, because if you're not careful with substitutionary atonement, what it essentially says is you're good, whatever. You know, Jesus has died for you. Jesus has taken your place. You're forgiven. You're going to heaven. I'm forget whatever, and that's a cheap grace, because it does not call forth. If you really take it to extreme, to the extreme, it doesn't call forth our own change of life. Am I wrong on that, Randy? Is that no, n- not at all. Not at not at all. And it took me a while to get there. It takes a lot of us a while to get there. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? Because we know we struggle with sin, even after we know we're. We're forgiven of our of our sin of our, of our sinful nature, um, but it's a comforting thing to think that it all it took was a transaction. You can see why it would catch on, mm-hmm. but it's about the whole. It's about the whole life. Now, one thing that's another thing that we have to struggle with and, and wrestle with is that for Paul, 
for Paul, he didn't talk a lot about the, the life of Jesus. He probably talked more about the life of Jesus than we give him credit for, but for him, it was it was the death, Christ crucified, right? And then when you get to the Gospel of Mark, which would have been just after the writings of Paul, Mark seems very, very interested in the death because it's you know the Gospel of Mark has been called a passion narrative with an extended introduction, and the introduction is pointing to the, the passion narrative. But the passion narrative, again, includes it includes the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in, with the further development as time goes on, then, then John starts bringing out more of the more of the life, I think. And then even in Matthew and, and Luke, we get more studies about about his life. Um, one of the things, one of the points that I made in my sermon was about um, Good Friday, and I made what was probably kind of a provocative statement. I said, if you if you look at it historically, the crucifixion historically, if you look at that day, that actual day in history when Jesus died, that Friday, there was absolutely nothing good ab- about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, just place yourself there. It was awful. In many ways, it looked like a failure. It's only in hindsight, and I do absolutely believe it's Good Friday, and I and I, you know, celebrate it. Maybe not the right word, but I, I honor that it's a Good Friday. But then it wasn't. It appeared that the forces of wickedness had won. Mm-hmm. I mean, the crucifixion was brutal, and especially in the in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was totally abandoned. I used this hit me. Uh, this is this hit me in the middle of uh, the very last moments of my of my sermon, when um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark says that Jesus threw himself on the ground. Jesus did not want to to die. He was in he was in agony. And I told the story about when my first wife Anne uh, was going through her cancer journey, and she was in the hospital a lot, and I would go to the chapel often and, and pray and so I was praying one day in the chapel and this woman came in and threw herself down in front of the altar there just in agony about what was going on clearly I don't know the details of it with the loved one that she was in there praying for so uh, that's another reason why it's hard for me to wrap my head around I'm not I'm not trying to stake a claim of absolute truth it's just hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that that was what God intended specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that was the purpose. The purpose of the coming was for Jesus to go through that. I do think it was inevitable because He did speak uh, truth to power, and it was uh, atoning. But what Jesus does is invites us to go through that. What you're talking about, the laying in the chapel. What what the gospel does, what Jesus' life, death, resurrection does is it invites us to go through all that with faith because he's gone before us. As Christians, we look at it differently. You know, yeah, this is awful. Um, No, I don't think cancer was God's plan or whatever was going on in this lady's, this person's loved Mm -hmm. one's life, Mm -hmm. not the plan. But we're able to go through that knowing, even though this is not what I want, even though this is not necessarily what God wants, I go through it with faith knowing God's going to sustain me. That makes a huge difference when a person is able to do that. I mean, in the last year, I lost my dad to cancer, and um, that was not his plan for his life. I don't necessarily believe that's God's plan for his life, 
But as a person of faith, I was able to go through that, um, really celebrating all those signs of God's sustaining presence. And uh, the reason I'm able to see it that way is, the reason I see it that way really is, is because of what I've seen in Jesus. Um, there's a, there's a um, Catholic person, Greg Boyd, no, Greg Boyle, I think is his name. He says, God will protect us from nothing and yet sustain us through all things. That's what I feel like we're seeing in Gethsemane. You know, does, does Jesus get protected through, from that? No. Does God sustain him? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And this is the perfect transition into the way I closed my sermon, and I was talking again about how this might be called participation, and we see it in baptism. We see it clearly in baptism, and this this in itself is in, is from the book of Romans, and I'm just I'm just going to read it. This is kind of the way I I closed. We were in the third chapter of Romans. This is in the sixth chapter of Romans, and uh, and. Uh, Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we might also walk in newness of life. Here's life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, so we're, we're united with him mm-hmm. in a death like his, we're, we're going to suffer. We're not looking for it. We're not desiring it, but I can tell you, you live long enough, you find out that it's, it's, it's part, part, us, of, yeah. part of the package. So that if we are, have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed, so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin, but if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole transformation of our way of life is implied throughout almost everything Paul says here. There's a newness of life. There's a transformation of life. Um, we're able to respond to our life now differently because Christ has gone before us. Uh, doesn't mean that things are not going to happen where it's difficult. Doesn't mean that we're not going to experience pain. None of that. No. But we experience it in a different way. We experience it in a new way, in a sense, um, which is the invitation of this good news of God's love that Jesus demonstrates. Mm-hmm. Okay, before we wrap it up, let's come back and preview. We touched on it earlier, but you're going to jump back in this week with your five-part series, and you're going to be talking about the fact that uh, Jesus' death is a sacrifice for sin. This is another one of the ways of looking at what happened on the cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to trace uh, the, in a sense, history of sacrifice throughout the Bible, how Jesus' death is applied in those ways. You know. Going back to the Hebrew Bible, there was many different types of sacrifices, and of course Jesus' death is interpreted as a sacrifice. And so what does that mean for us today? What is the invitation for us today? And I think if a person really gets this idea of Jesus' sacrifice down and what it means, what it is, it's it's an invitation um, to find happiness, really, at, at the end of the day. That's what the death really does for me. Um, and of course, if you're going to, find out what I mean by that, you're going to have to listen to my sermon because I'm only supposed to give a preview. Okay. There you go. Well, we may have um, created more questions than answers, but 
even now, uh, Andy, we often talk before we turn the microphones on a bit about what we're going to say. And today you said, well, let's just be led by the Spirit. And so I think that's good. And I think that what you all are hearing is that even in this moment, um, even though we talk about what we might be talking about, you can tell that we are we are continuing to wrestle with these things. And yeah. so... Um, I mean, I, yeah. one of the things that people, I feel like, assume about pastors is we're just going to get up there and able to say things with absolute confidence and certainty, and there's not going to be <laughs> any questions. That's just not, we're human beings. Yeah. I mean, this podcast, any sermon we preach, what are we doing? We, like everyone else there, are on the journey. We're trying to figure it out. And uh, I think one of the things that I know is like, I've preached well when um, I come out of it with a new insight in my own journey. I'm not just telling people what they think they you know, should hear or want to hear, but I come out of it like I'm different now because of this, this whole experience, whether it's a podcast, sermon, Sunday school lesson, whatever. Um, it's, 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 it's about its own form of transformation for us. Yeah, one of the best definitions of a sermon I ever heard went something like this. It is sharing uh, your journey of discovery, mm-hmm. sharing your journey of discovery. And even if it ends with a question mark, that, that's okay. Um, as you said, sometimes we want to be emphat- emphatic, and we should. I mean, we are certain about certain things, sure. right? But it's that sharing that process of discovery. I mean, I've seen your desk and what it looks like. My desk is similar. I mean, you know. It's just... Uh, <laughs> it, it's just, I mean, every sermon I've ever preached, especially in last year, is like, okay, here's my topic. I'm going to enter into this wilderness this week, and and how does this apply to my life today? That's at the end of the day what I'm thinking about. Like, how does this give meaning, value to my life today? Um, and uh, the Christian argument is the cross is the defining point in terms of meaning and value this is what life this is what's deep deeply true about our lives mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it's it's what's deeply true about how god loves us but it's also invites what's most needed if we're actually going to experience that too it's like god dies for us so that we could die for god in a sense absolutely yeah absolutely. that's the invitation yeah All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. As always, we'd love to hear your comments and your your feedback. And if you have any questions, we'd love to incorporate those into what we do. But we hope you're having a a meaningful uh, Lenten season. Uh, We hope that you're working on those spiritual disciplines. We're all working on them all the time. We will never perfect them. But I just love that example that you use, Andy, that this is spring training. I'm a baseball guy. This is spring training. Such an apt illustration of of what we do. We get back to the fundamentals Mm -hmm. during Lent in preparation for that huge celebration at the end of it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week. This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 830 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. 
We see Christ in you.